Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Veronica Pehi about her new book, Velvet Retro, Post-Socialist Nostalgia and the Politics of Heroism in Czech Popular Culture, which was published with Bergen Books in 2020. Welcome, Veronica. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Pehi received her PhD in cultural history at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London in 2016. She is currently a Marie Skłodowska Curie Fellow at the Institute of Contemporary History of the Czech Academy of Sciences. Prior to that, she was a Max Weber Postdoctoral Fellow at the European University Institute in Florence. She has published on questions of nostalgia, retro, Popular Culture, Oral History, and the Memory of the 1990s. In addition to this book, she is co-author of 100 Student Evolutions, University Students of 1989, Biographical Narratives in Longitudinal Perspective, which was published in Czech by Academia Press in 2019. In addition, Veronica is a commentator and journalist. She cooperates with the Czech online daily, Alarm, and regularly comments on Polish politics and society in Czech media. So, Veronica, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book? Sure. So, this book is actually, um, as is usually the case with first books, uh, the result of my dissertation. Uh, so, this is a topic that I started researching way back in 2011. So, it's been 10 years now that I think about it. And at that time, I was a graduate student, and there was a series running on Czech public television called Tell Me a Story. And I was really intrigued by how this series, which is basically a soap opera set from the 1960s until the present, how it portrayed state socialism, but in particular, its material culture. So, you know, all these props and costumes and hairstyles and fashions Uh, which really stood in contrast with its quite black and white moralizing stance on the communist past. And I thought that's an interesting discrepancy and that's something that needs to be studied. And so that was the original uh, impulse for studying this whole topic of nostalgia and retro and the memory of state socialism in the Czech Republic uh, and in, in Central Europe. And so I wanted to actually talk about this term retro. And in the introduction, you discuss why you chose the term retro rather than nostalgia. So can you explain the differences between these two terms and why you chose the former? Nostalgia is a term that has been used a lot when discussing post-socialist memory. There's a lot of literature on nostalgie, uh, which is the German version of nostalgia for East Germany. Um, but it's also been applied in other national contexts. And as I was looking at these Czech artifacts, I thought that there's actually quite little evidence for nostalgia for either the utopian impulse of the socialist project or for the everyday aspects of state socialism. Nostalgia is a term that 
I think, implies some kind of emotional connection to the past. But what I observed in the Czech case is that popular culture reappropriates the aesthetic aspects of life under socialism while not longing for its return, for the return of this period, but on the contrary, being quite often uh, condemning of the communist regime. And retro is a term which I think captures this dynamic, or that's what I've tried to argue for in my book. It's a memory regime that's divested of an emotional charge and has a different temporal dynamic to nostalgia. Because nostalgia suggests that something in the past was better than it is today, but retro is firmly rooted in the present. It uses and exploits aspects of the past, but with a firm knowledge that the present is in fact superior. And so given that, can retro also in certain circumstances incorporate affect or the emotional? Uh, It can. So the thing about retro is that it's kind of a postmodern sensibility, which uses this pick and mix attitude towards the past, perhaps looking with longing at certain aspects of the past, but it's not totalizing and at the same time ridiculing different aspects of the past or being quite ironic about them. And that's the kind of mixture that we get a lot in the Czech case. And uh, in terms of longing, uh, nostalgic longing, it is certainly present in Czech popular culture as well. But actually, this kind of nostalgic sentiment takes quite an unlikely object, because what I argue in the book is that there's actually a nostalgia for resistance, for resisting the communist regime. So not for enjoying that time period, its lifestyle or its politics or its everydayness, but rather overcoming um, the, say, socialist past and progressing into the present. So when people, in a way, had kind of a broader aim or larger mission uh, that they felt collectively united them, in a sense. Sure. So there's definitely this this nostalgia for a more black and white time when things were easier. It was clear who was the enemy, who were the bad guys, who were the good guys. And uh, films, TV series, and novels definitely make, make use of this. And in fact, a mechanism they use quite often to convey this kind of sense of uh, black and whiteness or a kind of more clear-cut, simpler world is to use child narrators or teenagers who who narrate the stories Uh, because in their view, everything is kind of uh, simplified. It's a really um, ubiquitous trope, not only in the Czech cultural memory of, say, socialism, but also in other national contexts. You'll find that Films have been made in uh, the former Yugoslavia or Russia or Germany, which also employ a teenage protagonist or or a child narrator um, to kind of tease out the discrepancies between a, a seemingly naive uh, childhood view and and the co- and contrast that to um, the way adults uh, perceive the political context. So especially Czech representations, which which uh, are often comedies. And I'm sure we'll discuss that more because that's kind of really a, a major uh, major current in, in these representations. Uh, they're, they're quite effective at mining jokes out of this discrepancy between a kind of naive childhood view uh, of living under state socialism and a more knowing uh, adult perspective. Yeah, and of course, I'm thinking uh, right of Tito sure, and me. Yeah. Um, Okay, for those who are not experts, could you tell us what you mean by velvet? So the velvet designation in your title. Velvet 
revolution is the term that has been uh, given to the changes that brought about the collapse of the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. Um, in Slovakia or in Slovak, um, this event is usually referred to as the as the gentle revolution. And I argue that a lot of the representations that constitute this cultural memory of um, the socialist past have a very kind of gentle, benign view, or perhaps velvet is also an adjective that can be used here, uh, in the sense that they don't antagonize their audiences. They don't build a memory conflict. Instead, um, especially comedies, which always aim for reconciliation in their narratives, are try to kind of include as, as broad an audience into their stories as possible. So what I mean by that is that they offer stories of ordinary people who um, weren't necessarily dissidents, they weren't vocally opposed to the communist regime, but they did resist in some small ways by, let's say, small everyday gestures um, or just complaints that they would voice to their family or to friends in the pub. Um, and so this kind of picture mm, paints quite a kind of... Uh, quite a cozy view, actually, of, of, of uh, life under state socialism and creates a kind of um, memory uh, which is quite self-congratulatory for Czech society in that sense, kind of showing how ordinary people all manage to live through difficult times um, quite well, um, voicing, voicing their, their disagreement and kind of not compromising morally. Right. So in contrast to maybe the harshness or the perspective of this harsh society we have, the velvet is a form of kind of cushioning or softening that experience. Absolutely. And uh, this kind of cultural memory is uh, at times was or is, in fact, in contrast with public discourse. And a large part of the book is also devoted to kind of setting these two different uh, modes in, in conversation. So looking at cultural production, but then also looking at what's going on in politics and in the media and how the communist past is being discussed there. And of course, what we saw after 1989, like in many other countries of the former Eastern Bloc, is that there was um, this drive to condemn uh, the communist regime to to find the perpetrators to punish them to perhaps uh, set right certain wrongdoings through various uh, transitional justice measures. So that of course was happening in the Czech Republic as well, and in public discourse and in politics, very quickly a kind of anti-communist consensus formed. This was of course a kind of quite natural reaction when there is a regime change to kind of uh, for for political actors to set themselves. Uh, quite uh, strikingly against the, the the previous regime as a kind of form of, of, of their own political legitimation. Um, but uh, certainly these these debates were at times very very emotional um, and and quite uh, complicated. There were you know different different political factions uh, competing for for different um, transitional justice outcomes uh, for, for different forms of symbolic recognition. 
And so when cultural producers then came and started making comedies about the past, you know, it was it was really it was really quite different to this kind of harsh condemnation of, of public discourse. And for for some critics and for audiences, for sure, this w- w- could be read almost as a form of relief. Well, great, because this is an excellent segue to my next questions, which uh, have to do with your major argument or arguments of the book and all the sor- also the sources you draw on in to support that argument. So maybe you could discuss that. Sure. Well, the sources are, um, it, it's basically a corpus of feature films, television series and novels produced after 1989, uh, but which turns back to the pre-89 past. And my criterion for selection was to look at popular works that had a significant network of dissemination, because only in that way were these representations able to shape the shared memory of the past. So I was kind of um, using here the work of Astrid Earle, who um, argues that um, cultural artifacts, in order to become media of memory, so to actually have uh, the power to, to shape the way uh, the past is remembered, also have to be received as such. What this means is basically it's not enough if um, a film is made, but then nobody watches it because it's a box office flop and, I don't know, television networks don't want to buy it, so nobody sees it. Well, then it can't really influence the kind of collective ideas about the past. So I was really looking at at films and TV series and novels that had a significant audience. Um, and the book, therefore, doesn't cover every single representation produced in the Czech Republic after 1989 that somehow touched upon the state socialist past. Uh, but I was selective about that. And the second type of source were public debates conducted in the media. And I focused on discussions of the heritage of socialist popular culture and also looked at the changing context of official memory politics. So in particular, institutional efforts to promote a certain interpretation of the past through historical institutes or through legislation. And so these provided an important context for the changing representational strategies taken up by cultural producers. So in terms of your major historical intervention, how would you um, conceptualize that or uh, place yourself? Sure. Well, the the book is you know, sits somewhere kind of between cultural studies and historiography. Um, I I do consider myself a historian. And I think what um, using cultural sources or um, representations for a historical study can bring is that it kind of really nuances and diversifies the the picture we have of um, post-1989 developments in in the region, because obviously the the systemic transformations of the 1990s and beyond is something that historians are now turning to a lot. Previously, obviously, the, this was this period was studied by political scientists and sociologists and anthropologists, and there's a really rich literature um, from from the 1990s and 2000s on all these changes that Eastern European societies underwent. Uh, but it seemed to me that to get a more rounded picture, um, this uh, narrative of cultural memory and its changes over a period of 25 years, so that's the period I looked at in the book from 1989 to 2014, a kind of picture of, of that was was missing from this, this history of post-socialist change, which has been primarily studied um, in terms of political history or intellectual history, social history to an extent. Um, and I wanted to bring in um, these these cultural artifacts because it seemed to me that um, 
the way a society thinks about itself and how it constitutes its its identity is not only a question of of politics, but also very much a, a question of of culture and and popular culture for sure. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree. I'm so um, thankful that you've written this book. It's so illuminating about how these changes since 1989 just reflect kind of this contention over memory, but then also a consensus to a certain degree. And the fact that you've historicized, I think, is particularly important because, of course, as you said, historians have shied away from it pretty much until recently because, okay, well, it, not enough time has passed. But I, I totally concur that, yeah, we're, we're ready to tackle this as historians. And so I hope we see a lot more work like this. And I guess my next question is kind of related to what you said, because you talked about nuances and complexities. So can you tell me a little bit about the silent majority that you referred to in your introduction and how that relates to your story? Right. So the silent majority is is a term that's uh, used sometimes to, to describe um, society living under state socialism or those parts of society who did not vocally oppose the regime, regardless of whether internally they agreed with it or not. So unlike dissidents or representatives of the so-called gray zone, um, who were usually recruited from an expert or academic milieu uh, and who formulated critiques um, veiled as scientific research or technocratic um, advice. Um, So the silent majority, I would say this is kind of who um, retro representations are very much aimed at um, because stories of everyday resistance offer such audiences a picture of how they, Czechs, managed to live through a repressive regime without compromising themselves morally. And of course, that's that's quite a flattering image um, to have of oneself as a society. And I think that's also what accounts for the success of some of these films and TV series and, and books. Right. So the uses of history, both personally, but also politically, in order to make people feel a little less guilty or better about themselves. And so they can kind of move forward in yeah, a way. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the, the, the role some of these representations played in that sense was to an extent therapeutic. Of course, you know, there's the other side of that argument, kind of, which would be that it's also kind of very, a, a very kind of facile exculpation and, and an uh, unwillingness to, to face um, historical experience and to kind of deal with the truly uh, traumatic uh, past and to kind of, you know, stand up to it and identify perpetrators or kind of achieve reconciliation in whatever other way is necessary. Um, But certainly, you know, that's the kind of reception uh, a lot of these artifacts got that actually, you know, it it just probably felt like like a relief to um, to to not have this kind of very serious uh, condemnation uh, of the past that was happening in the media all the time and to just kind of be able to to laugh at it. Yeah, and certainly for people who did feel like they were experiencing stagnation or even some trauma during the socialist period, why should they want to confront it again immediately right after the collapse? They've been through these tumultuous periods in their lives. They just kind of want to, in a way, live a normal life, in quotes. Sure, but also so that we don't generalize, um, which I think I did in my previous answer, uh, I do also look at uh, specific uh, instances of reception in the book and for instance, there was this very um, interesting episode towards the end of the 1990s when suddenly debates erupted around a number of uh, socialist pop cultural artifacts. 
For instance, there was this really popular TV series from the 1970s called The 30 Cases of Major Zeman, which was uh, a crime series, a detective series. Um, and it was rescreened on Czech television for the first time since 1989 in 1989. Letters to the press, to to various dailies, saying we want our favorite TV series back. This is a part of our lives. Um, you know, we love the series in the seventies. We think it's um, it's it's just a good show, and we don't see anything political or ideological in it, and we just want to watch it. And then there was a whole other group uh, who, usually members of the younger generation, who were saying, "Well, actually, we're watching this series ironically." Sure, it's it's completely ridden with communist ideology. It's um, the ideological, um, uh, the, the 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 kind of the, the ideology is really explicit in, in in this series. But that's actually what makes fun watching. What makes it fun to to watch today uh, because we can kind of see through uh, the the fabrications uh, that the series offered about Czechoslovak history, um, and we can just laugh them away. So, you know, that's just an example of the kind of complex responses to um, socialist popular culture uh, that, that audiences had and how there was quite a discrepancy between the kind of um, elite commentariat and, and what actual audiences thought. Yeah, I find that really striking because there's, there's almost a continuity in terms of, of the elites and their paternalist attitude about what they know what is best for the population, right? Um, kind of a continuity with the socialist period, right? We're going to select these shows because we want to indoctrinate you in a sense, right? Or you, we want you to understand the world in a particular way. And it's one that's clearly freighted with ideology. And yet there's this pushback and and obviously, because it's an open society and, you know, you have, um, you know, multi-party system, there can be pushback on a popular level. And I think it's, it's fascinating that you incorporate that into your analysis, too, so you can see um, the way in which everyday individuals really kind of push back against the elite insistence that this is not appropriate for Czech audiences. Yeah, um... And I think it would be really fascinating to study reception in more detail. It's not something I do a whole lot in the book, simply because, you know, every book has to have its focus, otherwise it just gets too big. Um, and and I do study the kind of the, the, the ideological messages in representations as I read them, rather than how specific audiences responded to them most of the time. But there have been some excellent studies on this. And I would mention the the, the work of Kamil Chinatl or Irena Raifova, who, who have looked at some of these um, TV series or, or films and, and really tried to figure out who watches them and for what reasons. Great. Let's move on to the chapters now. So I'd like to discuss chapter one, which examines the emergence of anti-communist discourse after 1989. So what actors are promoting anti-communism during uh, the 90s and what modes of representation did they use to promote it? Anti-communism in the 1990s is really everywhere. I mean, there, I think there was a consensus, uh, well, almost a consensus across political parties and the media. Um, and this really has been studied a lot, you know, that anti-communism became a kind of token of belonging to the new elites or was, was a kind of political strategy. Um, 
And uh, certainly, mm, although there there were media, for instance, um, that kind of questioned uh, this this anti communism or tried to take up a kind of uh, different different stance, um, they they weren't really in in the mainstream. Um, so. You know, from a retrospective view, when doing this kind of overview, it would seem that that the range of opinion when it came to the communist past was was actually not not that large. That there really was a consensus. Obviously, within this consensus, you know, there were all kinds of debates on on who should get the most symbolic recognition, whether victims uh, of communist repressions. Um, should um, receive compensation. What compensation? What, what form that compensation should should take, and so on. Um, there there were debates about lustration, so um, vetting uh, people who ran for public office for uh, connections with the communist secret police, and so on. So all this was was going on, but uh, within a kind of general anti-communist framework, um, and. The, the actors who were promoting this discourse were, were politicians and, and journalists and generally people who participate in public discourse. But I think what's been kind of neglected in uh, studies of, of these processes uh, is a focus on cultural actors. So that's what I tried to do in that chapter is that I argue that um, cultural producers also took on the mantle of anti-communism in their work and often quite explicitly. Um, I looked at, for instance, the work of sculptor David Cherny, who uh, became quite notorious in 1991 when he painted pink a Soviet tank uh, that stood in a square in in Prague. Um, and Cherny even um, he even managed to use a Rolling Stones concert for his anti-communist agenda when he designed a T-shirt saying. And now I don't know if we're allowed to say obscenities on this program, but he designed a T-shirt saying "fuck the KSCM," which is the Communist Party, um, that Keith Richards wore at a at a Prague concert in two thousand three. That's just one example, but there were whole groups of cultural producers who put together, for instance, a series of petitions calling for the banning of the Communist Party, or at least for the ostracization of this party in political life. And this was already at a time after the turn of the millennium when the still existent communist party, that's perhaps also a specificity of the Czech context that the communist party continued to exist. It never had to uh, disband and continue to be called the communist party. Um, And after the turn of the millennium, it was once again being invited into talks by other democratic parties. And there was a lot of resistance, especially from um, the cultural sector to this. Uh, but in the Czech context, this participation of cultural actors makes sense, given the long tradition of the perceived significance of cultural elites for Czech political culture. And the prominent political role of intellectuals um, also forms one of the founding blocks of Czech national mythology. Yeah, and you talk about dissidents in this chapter as well. Where do they fit into these representations? These anti-communist representations, or do they? That's, even? that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, post-dissident elites were a kind of significant part of the political spectrum after 1989, uh, vying for power. They eventually kind of, well, had let's say mixed success, um, and you know, a lot of work is being done on uh, the kind of intellectual and political history of of post-dissent. Uh, uh, perhaps I'll just uh, mention my colleague from the Institute of Contemporary History, Michal Kopacek, who's working on this right now. Um, 
but I try to kind of um, do something else and and really uh, look at the significance of the scent in this kind of popular cultural memory. And there we see that um, dissidents don't really fit into these representations. They're largely absent from films or TV series or books uh, produced after 1989. Um, and that's because these representations generally take up the topic of ordinary people who just got on with their lives. And the exception of dissent sits really uneasily with these kinds of stories. And where dissidents are portrayed, they are generally seen as rather decadent individuals who indulge in a hedonistic lifestyle. And political motivations appear only as secondary to the parties and promiscuity of the dissident community. So although the book covers only the first 25 years after 1989, um, it might be an interesting aside to note that the first feature biopic of dissident and later president Václav Havel was released only last year, and it certainly cements the stereotype. I mean, in my opinion, the film is quite extraordinarily weak uh, because it reveals nothing of Havel's political ideals or doesn't explain at all why he was the leading personality around which Czechoslovak dissent coalesced. But instead, he's shown as a kind of bumbling womanizer who keeps on getting into trouble with his wife. And I think in general, such portrayals bear witness to the fact that much of the population had difficulty in really relating to dissident discourses in both the pre and post 89 periods. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, that cultural producers are not selecting dissidents um, to represent during this period because they're just not relatable for ordinary people. And what about Slovakia in all of this? So pre and post uh, Velvet Divorce period. Yeah, Slovakia would definitely seem to be a kind of uh, part of the story or a natural point of comparison with the Czech case, given that that the Czechs and Slovaks shared one country uh, for an extended period of time uh, until 1992. Um, And in fact, the socialist past that representations, the representations I discussed turn to um, are is is a common Czechoslovak past. Uh, But actually, cultural iterations of post-socialist nostalgia or retro have been quite scarce in Slovakia for a variety of reasons. Um, Mainly, Slovakia produced hardly any films in the 1990s that would act as media of cultural memory for the socialist past, mainly because the Slovak film industry really took a hard hit with privatization in the 1990s and hardly produced any feature films at all. Uh, But also the structure of the Slovak collective memory of state socialism is quite different. Anti-communism didn't play as significant a role, and reform communism enjoyed a much higher legitimacy in the Slovak part of the country, even after 1989. So the stories kind of start diverging, not only uh, after the Velvet Divorce, but actually earlier. Yeah, so then interestingly, not just politically and economically, but also culturally, in terms of also the memory regime, you see them going, these two countries going in their own direction. That's right. And certainly the, the, the Czech corpus of these cultural representations is, is much richer, kind of for, for these structural reasons, largely. Actually, Slovakia has produced uh, a number of really interesting novels um, uh, in the post-89 period about the, the, the pre-89 past, but that seems to be kind of the, the, the main uh, medium in which this cultural memory was captured. And it's only much later, kind of, in the 2010s, when the Slovaks also start producing historical feature films about the communist past. But these aren't really the kind of 
retro comedies that were really prevalent in in the Czech case throughout the 90s and at the turn of the millennium, but they're more kind of dramatic or even tragic stories that really try to um, paint a very dark picture of the communist past. Yeah, it's it's interesting the differences between the, the two countries and how they remember that past. Okay, so let's move on to chapter two, which is entitled uh, The Past as Comedy. And so how and why is comedy such a central facet of the memory of socialism in the 1990s? It's important to say that comedy has a strong tradition in Czech culture, and especially during late socialism, film comedies or, or TV series enjoyed a high popularity, um, given that humor lends itself to uh, being read between the lines. So that was a kind of very popular mode of reading during late socialism when audiences search for these kind of um, um, counter-regime messages in in popular cultural artifacts. And it's not surprising then that cultural producers reached to this popular genre also after 1989. Um, and as, as I mentioned, you know, at a time when uh, politicians and the media were busy condem- condemning the past regime, um, comedy seemed to be kind of um, uh, a good genre to to laugh away the trauma of of the past. And perhaps the the first um, writer to do this was uh, Michal Vivek with his novel um, "Wonderful Years That Sucked." That's the literal translation. It was actually translated uh, into English as "Bliss Was It in Bohemia," um, and that's a story of a precocious child and later teenager growing up in the nineteen seventies and eighties, and the humor rests of the book rests precisely on this discrepancy between the naive child's interpretation of political events and his parents' real or perhaps somewhat imagined uh, persecution by the authorities. So this kind of mechanism, which I mentioned, is is really prevalent in many, many representations of, of state socialism. And Vivek's novel really now is part of the canon, um, as are other comedies. And I think the best example is perhaps the 1999 hit film Cozy Dens, directed by Jan Hrebeek, um, a story of two feuding families in one Prague apartment building in 1968, um, which offers a kind of warm, benign view of the past, um, not denying that political circumstances made life difficult, as the story is set against the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968. But generally, it focuses on the everyday troubles of its colorful characters, um, so these comedies were highly popular because they didn't antagonize their audiences over the past. And in fact, comedy, by definition, strives for reconciliation. Uh, its goal is to include as many protagonists as possible into its final outcome. So it's not hard to see why that was a popular strategy um, with cultural producers. And there's also, obviously, even uh, a pre-socialist tradition of, of using comedy in this fashion, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, comedy definitely uh, has its cultural um, models or uh, kind of canonical uh, iterations in, in Czech culture, especially with with Schweik. Uh, so the the um, the good soldier Schweik, um, who appears in um, a series of novels by Jaroslav Hasek, and this was um, a World War One novel in which this um, soldier. Um, who's kind of a very idiosyncratic character, always manages to resist authority, but doing it in this kind of a very, um, well, perhaps cunning or perhaps plain stupid way. And nobody really ever knows um, which one it is. And that's kind of what makes him into a really intriguing character. And very often, Schweik is also 
um, invoked as a kind of um, cultural model of Czech national identity, uh, kind of used to argue for both sides. That is to say that he's he's used to invoke a kind of um, um, positive or a kind of good-natured side of, of Czech national identity, but he's also used to criticize it to say that the Czechs are kind of subservient um, playing or, or, or playing the fool when in fact only thinking about personal gain. So he's a very ambivalent character, but certainly a comic one. And that's something that um, anybody who produces uh, comic representations in within Czech culture kind of has to has to reckon with. Great. Okay, I'd like to move on to chapter three now. In chapter three, you look at popular culture and uh, devote considerable space to the socialist pop music icon, Karol Gott. So could you tell us why Gott is so relevant for understanding elite and popular memories of socialism and maybe touch on the nature of the debates about him? Yeah, well, Gott was the most popular singer of the era by far. Since the 1960s until recently when he passed away, he basically won every popular song contest in the Czech Republic or previously Czechoslovakia. So, you know, his his popularity was really extraordinary. Um and, you know, several generations grew up listening to his songs. Um, and uh, so obviously he was very much um, loved by audiences. Uh, but his critics um, also criticized him for, for being a kind of loyal lackey of the regime, willing to act on political demand in return for various benefits. And in 1999, Gott became the center of media attention. And interestingly, this was around the same time as the discussion over that crime TV series, The 30 Cases of Major Zeman, that I mentioned. Um, because Gott was supposed to represent the Czech Republic at the Expo exhibition in Hanover. And one critic writing in a daily newspaper called him a zombie and mm, regretted this choice uh, uh, for representing the Czech Republic. And Gott was very offended and kind of much back and forth uh, ensued in the media. Um, and a whole host of commentators got involved uh, uh, in this controversy, which highlighted what appeared to be two competing memory regimes of rupture and continuity. So while anti-communist commentators in the mainstream media advocated rupture with the past, saying, look, Gott is a relic of, uh, of the communist past. He shouldn't be representing us now in this in these new times at the World Fair, uh, readers, uh, uh, so newspaper readers and particular audience groups called for the right to integrate the memory of socialist popular culture into the continuity of their own biographies. Um, you know, they had grown up with God uh, and it was just part of their lives. Um, so a number of influential commentators tried to frame the products of socialist popular culture as ideologically dangerous remnants of a better forgotten era, but audiences were pretty clear um, for instance, in letters to the editor of various newspapers, that they didn't want their beloved artifacts to disappear. So in addition to Gott, you talk about the nostalgic moment of 1999. What, is, what was that? Yeah, so that was really this confluence of several things. So it was that um, rescreening of that crime series. It was this controversy over God. It was also another event that uh, took place a year earlier, but I think it can be kind of generally seen as this nostalgic moment of the late 1990s when um, this by then largely forgotten 
pop singer Michal David suddenly shot back to fame uh, when the Czech hockey team won the Olympic Games in Nagano. And, you know, that was a major, major event uh, because Czechs are huge, huge hockey fans. I mean, the game is even bigger than than football or soccer. Um, so when the hockey team returned from the Olympic Games, Michal David welcomed them with a song in Old Town Square in Prague, and suddenly he became super popular again. Uh, but Michal David was also an artist who was very much associated with the communist regime. He sang at um, these mass gymnastics events in, in the late 80s. Um, and so that also mm, definitely was met with distaste from from commentators in the media but you know he sold lots of records and became really popular again um so so it was these three things plus the release of cozy dens the the comedy about 1968 that i mentioned which was a major hit and it was seen in cinemas by over one million people which in a country of 10 million is really quite a lot and when you think about all the repeats that it gets on television Every year, it's one of those films that's shown at Christmas. Um, you know, it would be hard to find many people who actually haven't seen it. So in this sense, you know, that's also an argument for why studying popular culture uh, as media of memory really makes sense. Because, you know, these are representations that have probably influenced the way many people think about the past. And especially the younger generation who didn't actually experience the pre-89 period themselves. Quite often, these representations are their first point of access to this history. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask a follow-up question about generations, because I'm thinking about the difference between nostalgia and retro and how it's somewhat generationally located. Um, And so would you see this nostalgic moment of 1999 being evidence of pure nostalgia, genuine nostalgia, but also kind of this inherited nostalgia by the younger generations and also an example of retro? Yes. So there is a generational story here. Of course, people who experienced um, state socialism, you know, who experienced their youth in this period, um, many have a kind of genuine nostalgia for when they were young, regardless of the political circumstances. That's quite a natural phenomenon that we encounter in any kind of society and any political regime. Um, but also around these events towards the end of the 1990s, uh, we can see um, a kind of retro reception strategy arising. And I think this is important because retro isn't just something that's a property of cultural artifacts uh, or a strategy that cultural producers choose, um, but it can be also a mode of reading. Um, And definitely, uh, especially with the series, The 30 Cases of Major Zeman, Uh, Younger people um, who had watched the series as children, or perhaps not at all, uh, were viewing it through this kind of postmodern lens and enjoying it as a kind of camp artifact, reveling in its deficient aesthetics and unveiling its obvious ideological fabrications. So for them, the series was kind of marvelous postmodern fun, uh, devoid of any ideological threat. Um, and so this is where I kind of see a retro strategy, right? That it's this kind of pick and mix attitude towards the past that's um, devoid of a kind of um, genuine emotional attachment. Right. And I'm certainly you see evidence of this throughout the former bloc with the reemergence of the milk bars in Poland and bars and nightclubs that have this communist oriented theme 
that uh, are mainly attended by young people. And, and when I say young people, uh, you know, people who live there, not just tourists. Uh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, this is something I, I didn't discuss in much detail in the book, but I did some research on. Um, there was uh, a bar in Prague. It's it's now defunct, but it was called Propaganda, and it was decorated with all kinds of uh, communist artifacts, not just from Czechoslovakia. You know, it was really kind of a uh, complete pastiche. You know, with Stalin and Lenin and and Czech leaders. Uh, uh, you know, and 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 lots and lots of really random, uh, vaguely socialist themed artifacts. And I, I was really intrigued by you know who's who's running this bar or, you know, what, what was their aim in opening it? And it turned out that actually it was a run by a foreigner, um, by uh, um, an American entrepreneur who came to Prague in the 1990s. And he also opened a museum of communism in Prague. And I thought this was actually a really kind of intriguing moment, or it was very telling that um, this kind of cultural recycling, you know, that's definitely devoid of any kind of lived memory in, in the case of this um, American businessman, uh, you know, is, is, is just being used for, for profit in this kind of completely emotionally detached way. And in fact, the Museum of Communism was very much aware of this because for many years it was located above a McDonald's outlet in central Prague. And its um, marketing materials made fun of this fact that, you know, it was the Museum of Communism, but very much in, in the center of capitalism. Um, and, and that's something, this kind of irony of that was something that they used to, to attract customers. Um, but, you know, it was a place that was aimed mainly at, at foreigners, actually, to, to give them a kind of taste of this almost exotic uh, communist past rather than at, at Czech people to remind them of their own history. Right. And you include that flyer in the book. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, well, let's move on to chapter four, where you look at filmic representations of resistance and petty heroism under socialism. Can, can you tell us a bit about you know, why we see the emergence of these, these films based on resistance and petty heroism? Yeah, so what I mean by petty heroism is kind of, um, you know, nostalgia for a time when there was a clearly defined enemy. And when even a poor joke could be interpreted as an act of resistance. So this mechanism is present basically in all comic representations of socialism in the Czech context, and it's used to generate humor, where um, you'll have a character who will do something really insignificant in order to show their opposition to the communist regime, and then basically they feel much better about themselves afterwards. Um, an example is, for instance, a group of teenage boys in um, a novel by Petr Shabach, and was subsequently made into a film called The Identity Card. And this kind of petty, heroic situation focuses on um, the identity card from the title, which wasn't actually a card under state socialism, but a booklet, um, a paper booklet. And one of these teenage boys convinces all his friends that they should tear out a page uh, from their identity card booklets because he heard somewhere that if you tear out page 13, uh, that means you're against the regime. And when he says that to his friends, they're all kind of taken aback by that. You know, they think, well, aren't we going to get in trouble? So then the, the guy who came up with the idea says, okay, maybe we'll just tear it a little bit. We won't actually tear it out. You know, we'll just kind of make a little, a little tear to show that, you know, we're, we're against, but, you know, we won't do the, the full thing. Um, and it turns out that um, rather than actually genuinely trying to make a political statement, he's mainly trying to imitate um, his older brother, 
who did that, you know, so it's a kind of initiation ritual as well for, for these teenage boys. Um, and, you know, the, the scene is set up that obviously it's, it's, it's quite funny when, when, when the boys uh, are, dis- are confronted by their friend uh, with this potential act of quite um, insignificant, but, you know, potentially kind of mm, trouble generating uh, resistance. Um, and, and films and, and novels and TV series are just, are just full of these kinds of, of moments. Um, and obviously the, the way these representations are structured uh, ask the audience to sympathize with these acts. Um, the, 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 the narrative always asks us to be on the side of those who are automatically against the regime and communists or representatives of authority are ridiculed. And quite often they're portrayed as simply laughable figures, not threatening at all, but just plain silly. Right. So the members of the security uh, services are bumbling, Absolutely. right? They're, they're bumbling um, or they're just kind of, you know, um, very ruthless, um, career oriented people, um, but not in a way that would actually be scary, but more just kind of that um, is worthy of condemnation. Um, but there's there's another great example from from a film called Pupendo, which actually isn't a particularly translatable title because it's a made up word in in Czech. But there's a a, a character of a headmaster who uh, gets into a kind of argument with a kind of nonconformist friend of his, who's a sculptor, and the sculptor has kind of lots of political problems. He He's been denied various commissions because of his um, his political opinions, and he finally is commissioned to install a, a kind of mosaic uh, in in the school where this headmaster teaches, and and the headmaster gives this kind of long speech where he says, you know, I just I just do it I just do it uh, for show, but internally, of course, I'm against the communists, um, and his sculptor friend challenges him to write it on a piece of paper. And then the headmaster gets really scared and he's like, well, but what are you going to do with it? And the sculptor comes up with the idea to uh, plant the paper in, in the sculpture that he's working on so that it will kind of stay there as a, as a message to future generations. And so then the headmaster, when he realizes that nobody will actually be able to read it, gets really excited and, and scrawls this kind of anti-communist message um, saying that, you know, he was, he was always opposed to the communists because he knows that it's a completely insignificant act that won't actually have any repercussions in in his real life. Um, so that's that's a kind of very typical uh, example of, of petty heroism as well. What I find interesting is that you have right; these are filmmakers, and it's not it's not as if this is being directed at the top, right, by political elites um, who are trying to present a particular interpretation of the past. So, what is it? about these filmmakers that 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 they feel that there's this need for this narrative of the communist past where these where petty heroism needs to be represented um needs to be maybe even glorified in a way i mean why are the why and how are these petty uh heroes useful um and why are they necessary in a way yeah that's an interesting question because on the one hand i think you know this could be interpreted as petty heroes and everyday actions of resistance granting ordinary people agency and a lot of the literature on on nostalgia, on the German version of nostalgia, definitely does make such an argument. But I think in the Czech case, I mean, it's it's hard to say because I didn't interview the filmmakers or the writers, right? So I and I only could read interviews, for instance, where they talked about their intentions. Um, 
But it also seems to me that, um, in fact, these representations are quite anti-communist, right? I mean, they do offer this kind of humorous, um, kindly picture of the past. But in fact, you know, all the communist characters are simply negative. They're they're laughable. Uh, we as audiences are meant to be against them. Um, and and I I suspect that the filmmakers and and writers would kind of subscribe to this kind of uh, anti-communist interpretation because as as I mentioned the the cultural elites were also very much engaged in this kind of anti-communist discourse throughout the 1990s and and further on um so it's you know there the, there are different different levels uh, to this but you know what what audiences can take away from this is is a whole another question um and it seems that a kind of you know affirmative in, interpretation of of the agency of ordinary people uh, under a repressive regime can can have value for a lot of people. But also, on the other hand, these representations offer a very facile and self-congratulatory narrative on how well the Czechs did when, when facing um, communist repression. And also these films largely avoid engaging with the moral compromises and pathologies of the period because the characters we're meant to sympathize with are always morally on the right side. Right. And then it begs the question, right, um, you know, the idea of risk, like how risky do you want to be as a filmmaker? Are you in it to kind of challenge your your viewers in a sense to kind of self-reflect and look within? Or, you know, do you want to make them feel comfortable about their past? Do you want to um, provide them with a pleasurable viewing experience and kind of an affirmation that their life was worthwhile and that they didn't morally compromise themselves? So are they in it for the money, right? It's it, that, That's a really difficult question to ask, but it, it, it definitely brings up those questions. And you also obviously investigate that with respect to how in addition to filmmakers, you have historians who are trying to kind of push back uh, against these simplistic narratives. Definitely. I mean, that, that starts to happen kind of a bit later on. So let's say, you know, in, in, in the mid 2000s. But then there's also later on, and maybe we'll discuss this a little bit more when we talk about the final chapter, but there's this whole kind of um, backlash uh, to these kind of uh, comedic narratives where suddenly or not so suddenly, because it, it has to do with developments in general within memory politics and, and the public sphere. But cultural producers turn to these much more um, serious narratives where they really try to kind of explore the trauma of the past. But the thing is, I mean, as you said, when filmmakers were making these comedies, they were probably, you know, to, to an extent also meeting audience demand in the sense that, you know, people were probably quite happy to 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 have these kinds of of, of narratives which were actually um, quite quite charitable to society in general and and how it lived through uh, state socialism and then later on these these filmmakers come and they really try to kind of you know stage these stark moral conflicts in in their work and and confront the the trauma of the past but you know with 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 mixed success. I would say, um, because also a lot of these films are then extremely moralizing and black and white, and that can put a lot of people off. So they they often also had a kind of very mixed reception. Yeah, I mean, I think actually it makes sense to talk about chapter six now, which is the topic of, you know, what you've just discussed, this, this idea of the dramatic turn and also this discourse that emerges, which is very black and white, very polarizing. And, and in chapter six, you talk about institutional efforts to historicize the past, but also cultural efforts. So maybe 
we can talk about this on an institutional level in terms of the bodies that were organized, right, to to deal with this this memory, right, to historicize it and how that plays out, how this dramatic turn plays out in film and other cultural representations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, basically what we see around 2005 are efforts for the state to take a more active role in shaping the memory of the past and within national identity. Um, That's why a group of predominantly right-wing members of parliament started to advocate for an institute of national memory, like in Poland or Slovakia. And what eventually became came to be called the Institute for the Study of Totalitarian Regimes opened in 2007. But instead of creating a memory consensus, it really greatly contributed to fracturing the memory uh, of the of the communist past in the Czech Republic. Um, and the opening of the institute brought to the fore uh, an officially me- official memory politics that tried to create an understanding of state socialism as a period of totalitarianism, as apparent already from the Institute's name. And it also actively sought to promote a national memory founded on the notion of heroic resistance. Um, So like other institutes in the region, um, the the Czech Institute investigates the crimes of both Nazism and communism and effectively equates the two. Uh, And the Institute is also um, the administrator of the uh, security services archives uh, provides access to files of former of the former secret police, and in a kind of very debated and controversial move, it also helps to administer certificates to anti-communist resistance fighters, which is a category that very much lacks consensus in the Czech public sphere. So all of this kind of started a really massive debate um, in in two thousand seven. Um, and I would say that around this time, anti-communism as the dominant post-89 memory narrative was also increasingly coming under fire in public discourse, um, not only from historians and other scholars, as you mentioned, uh, but also from um, new media. Because with the rise of the internet, the Czech media sphere really diversified. I, I mentioned earlier that um, there, there was this kind of anti-communist consensus in much of the media in the 1990s. And generally, the, the media... Most of them were oriented um, towards towards the the right or a kind of liberal right, uh, but with with the internet, you know, the and and the kind of um, new possibilities of access it offered, uh, a number of left leaning uh, media um, also um, started to to be more and more significant in Czech public debate. Um, so, my argument in that chapter is that just as anti-communism was being questioned more and more frequently, its adherents, both on the level of institutional actors and cultural producers, attempted to fortify a memory of anti-communist resistance with new heroic tales. So either by promoting these real stories of uh, people who who resisted the communist regime um, or through representations. And so that's what I call the dramatic turn, where many Czech novels and films in this period suddenly evince a new search for heroes. Um, cultural producers started to tell stories uh, in which they attempted to present positive role models for living in a repressive regime, whether through active resistance or strong moral positions, which resonated with wider attempts to forge a resistant-based national memory. Uh, And it's not as if retro comedies stopped being made, um, but representations in this period definitely saw a shift away from retro and comedy and towards different genres that cast the past as tragedy and trauma. 
So we see a bunch of films that were set as kind of psychological thrillers or crime thrillers or courtroom dramas, um, but, you know, very much kind of stories that um, didn't, um, didn't make use of humor. Uh, and these generic repertoires evoke fear as a kind of dominant mood, but also the desire to depict Czechoslovak history as grand narrative. Uh, and that's maybe something I didn't emphasize enough earlier, but most of these comedies are really episodic. They don't recount a kind of grand tale. Um, the, the stories they tell don't have a kind of large trajectory. Most often, they're just kind of collections of episodes from the everyday lives of their characters, which are structured by encounters with um, the authorities, uh, where the characters perform these petty heroic gestures um, and, you know, usually fail or perhaps not, but that's kind of what, what drives the narrative forward. Uh, but these new films and, and novels, because there was also quite a, a large corpus of novels that did the same, um, they, they really dispense with this episodic structure and try to um, create kind of large uh, stories of, of genuinely heroic acts. And then a part of this, of course, is also seeing the communist period as this kind of exceptional period, right? That was the result of, you know, the Soviet liberation of Czechoslovakia and liberation in quotes, of course. And that what you see then after 1989 is a continuity or a continuation of the interwar liberal democratic tradition in Czechoslovakia. Absolutely. That's a really kind of deeply ingrained um, narrative in, in the Czech memory of the communist past, um, but also in public discourse. This idea that the communist regime was an aberration in the otherwise naturally democratic course of Czechoslovak or Czech history. Um, so the, the interwar democratic first republic um, is very much invoked as a kind of, uh, or was invoked, especially in the 1990s, as the kind of role model to which the Czechs should return, but also... I argue, actually, that um, in many of these representations, the interwar First Republic is this kind of implicit object of nostalgia in the sense that, um, you know, positive characters uh, who have the kind of right moral compass to resist the communists uh, always have some kind of connection with, with the First Republic. Right, to the point where they're even wearing the clothing and they are still, um, they have the stylistic qualities of the interwar period. Absolutely, that's the case of films set in the 1950s, for example, this, this crime drama in the shadow, um, which deals with kind of a, a secret police a plot to, to, to frame a bunch of people who are kind of seen as political opponents to, to the regime. And there's this kind of brave, you know, morally upright detective who sees through this plot and kind of uh, tries to oppose it. And there we see, you know, he's marked stylistically, he's marked as a positive character because he has this kind of interwar elegance where, you know, a lot of the communist uh, apparatchiks in the film are these kind of quite sleazy, greasy, not very well-styled um, individuals. Um, here are main hero, the, the detective, you know, always wears his fedora hat and has a kind of uh, uh, well-fitting trench coat and, you know, looks kind of, um, looks, looks very sleek. Right, looks sure, Western yeah. too. <laughs> um, so I was wondering how the 
TV documentary, The Czech Century, fits into this um, discussion, right, of uh, how it fits into this dramatic turn. Czech Century is a really interesting example of a representation of the past that doesn't really fit into either the template of retro comedy or the dramatic turn. Uh, This was a docudrama series that aired on Czech television in 2013 and 14 and reconstructed key moments of Czechoslovak history um, throughout the 20th century. And if many of the representations I talk about in the book prescribe specific political interpretations of the past, Czech century goes to show that representations can also produce an open, multifaceted memory that complicates and questions uh, understandings of the past. Um, And I think it's really interesting because despite the fact it focused mainly on uh, men of power, so, you know, politicians and, you know, politicians in, in the highest ranking positions, it completely did not try to heroicize them, but often showed them actually in very mundane situations. And the debate the series sparked was also really extraordinary in terms of its complexity, because it engaged not only journalists and commentators, uh, but also historians, and also eyewitnesses, and even some of the historical actors portrayed in the series, uh, because the series actually ran all the way up to the Velvet Revolution and even the the economic transformation of the 1990s. Um, And it really managed to avoid the established patterns of both a self-congratulatory or a victimizing narrative. And it didn't make any kind of conscious effort to take up the role of a memory, memory film that would attempt to present a cohesive national mythology. And so in this sense, um, Reviewers remarked, and I think I would subscribe to this opinion, that Czech Century really fulfilled its mission as public broadcasting because it enabled a multiplicity of interpretations of the past to to emerge. And I I close the book with Czech Century because it it closes off that time period that I focused on the first 25 years after 1989. Um, And I kind of considered it to indicate the, the, or to be an indication of the more pluralizing direction the Czech memory landscape would take later on. And, you know, I think that that proved to be true during those years when I was then working on the book and until its its publication, that nowadays really these patterns that I described in the book of, you know, either retro comedy or or these kind of dramatic, uh, but also quite victimizing black and white narratives, these, these are just two, two kind of... Um, forms of cultural memory, but nowadays the, the kind of representational diversity and uh, of, of the approaches to, to the past is, is just much greater. Yeah, and I found it fascinating that there was a discussion that accompanied it, its airing, right, by in ordinary individuals and um, also by scholars. So would you see the airing of this series as kind of similar to maybe the Historikerstreit in, in Germany, like a mini yeah, one? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, the historians yeah, I wouldn't attribute as much significance to it because, you know, after all, this was a kind of quite elite cultural product that, you know, it didn't have the kind of uh, audience ratings that, you know, some of these comedies did. Um, I, I don't have the exact... Um, audience figures here now, but, you know, it, it, the, the debate was kind of limited to um, quite a kind of enclosed um, public sphere of, of, of intellectuals and, and historians and, and historical actors. Um, but, but I think it, it, it was in some way uh, significant for, for kind of breaking out of the, the established modes of, of representation. I mean, if there, if there, was something to be compared to the historical side, even though again it you know doesn't have the same significance. There's basically this kind of um, recurring 
debate that occurs in the Czech public sphere. And I do kind of touch upon it in the book, but it seems to have kind of many return, eternally returning um, reiterations. Um, and that's basically a, a debate on the nature of, of the communist regime. Um, there are the kind of, the, there's the anti-communist camp who says that it was criminal uh, by default. It was totalitarian and should be considered as such, and therefore is completely worth of condemnation, and there's kind of nothing that... There are no aspects of the past that can be in any way salvaged or considered somehow, you know, interesting or inspirational. And then there's the kind of what, what has been termed quite derogatively the revisionist camp, although these alleged revisionists are quite often quite uh, reluctant to, to, to be termed as such. Um, and these are largely historians of, of, of a slightly younger generation, um, as well as some commentators in, in, in the media who say, well, hang on, you know, it's, it's perhaps a bit more complicated than to just have this kind of stark black and white view. Um, you know, the, the, the communist regime lasted 40 years. It underwent a whole uh, lot of internal changes during this period, it would be quite simplistic to characterize this whole period as totalitarian, although certainly certain periods um, may have um, uh, evinced signs of, of, of totalitarianism. And, you know, these alleged revisionists are by no means saying that the regime didn't um, hurt many people, you know, that it didn't produce many, many victims, um, that it wasn't, uh, you know, authoritarian. Of course, it, it was. But they're just saying, you know, that um, maybe we should also look at why it enjoyed a certain degree of popular support, um, why it lasted so long, you know, and the reasons might be more complicated than just that the secret police held everybody in fear all the time. Uh, and, you know, versions of this debate kind of have been coming up. And uh, most recently, um, last year in the summer, there was there was um, a very kind of intense iteration of this debate when historian Michal Pullman, who kind of uh, ranks among the revisionists, um, gave, gave an interview which was seen by certain anti-communist commentators as kind of particularly uh, controversial. And, and once again, um, this, this, this whole debate started um, uh, again. Uh, and I think, you know, the, 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 the representations of, of the past and the, those kind of debates that I was discussing around socialist popular culture, around Karel Gott and the 30 cases of Major Zeman, they're in a way also um, just a manifestation of, of the same conflict, right? About whether the past should simply be condemned um, and, you know, what, whatever kind of legal or, or moral consequences you want to draw from that, or whether the past should be understood. But, you know, does that fall into the, into the trap of somehow um, actually defending it or, or kind of painting a, a more positive picture than it, than it deserves? And in the book, I try to frame popular culture as, as, as part of this debate. Um, okay, yeah, and so your last comment gets me to the question, which is how much of this story is related to the challenges in dealing with a complex past on the one hand, and how much of it is related to current concerns, so economic, political, social, ethnic concerns? I would argue that Czech society has moved on to different concerns. Uh, Anti-communism still exists, especially since the mainstream media in the Czech Republic still demonstrate a significant continuity of personnel with the 1990s. So, you know, it's the same commentators who were active in those 1999 debates around Karel Gott. They're still writing and are respected columnists today. 
but I would say that a lot has changed otherwise, with especially with the rise of technocratic populist political movements, um, especially that of the current prime minister, Andrei Babish. Um, and Babish is a significant figure for kind of shifting the memory of, of the socialist past in the Czech Republic, because um, even though he was a member of the Communist Party, and there was a lawsuit against him, which did show that he collaborated with the secret police before 1989, that hasn't detracted uh, from his popularity. Uh, voters just don't seem to be particularly interested in these kinds of memory conflicts anymore. You know, this is something that would have animated the imagination of, of voters in the 1990s, for sure. But simply in 2013, 2014, 2015, when Babish was, was on the rise, it just didn't have that much potency anymore. And certainly the 2015 European migration crisis and the accompanying Islamophobia also really redefined the main topics of Czech public discourse. Um, so I would say that a constant vying over the communist past really characterized post-socialism as a, as a period. And I would say that that period is kind of more or less over or, you know, we're kind of seeing its, its last echoes. Um, and... I would say that the main memory conflict now in the Czech public sphere, as we can see also in other countries um, in uh, Eastern Europe, is an interpretation of, of the systemic transformation of the 1990s. And so uh, focused more on um, privatization, the adoption of neoliberal principles. Absolutely. Looking at kind of, you know, what what went wrong, what could have been done better, or who gets to claim credit for... Um, for, for the changes, especially since many of the liberal elites who were um, involved in uh, the systemic transformation, who kind of set the course of that transformation, um, they they see the, the liberal values that they try to build as being repudiated today with the kind of populist turn, even though the Czech version of populism, you know, to the extent that it's a useful term at all, because it, it is so vague, but, you know, it's quite different to, let's say, it's, it's Polish or, or Hungarian, uh, more authoritarian counterparts. Uh, but still, there is definitely a sense, I would say, among kind of the, the, the liberal part of the population that, that there is this kind of change, this kind of um, slippage of, of, of liberal values. Um, so there's this whole kind of, you know, conflict also over who, who gets to claim credit for, for the transformation and whether, whether you know, it, it was a good thing or not. Yeah, and then there's the whole uh, effect of the economic crisis on the region, and that would be another discussion. So I was wondering if maybe you could give us uh, another example in the region, um, so a former um, Eastern Bloc country, where you see retro or evidence of retro. Right. So retro does, does appear because one of the arguments in the book is also that retro isn't something that's specific to the Czech Republic. It's not specific to Eastern Europe, but it's a phenomenon that we also see in Western popular culture. Um, and certainly some aspects of ostalgie very much make, make use of retro, even though it hasn't been discussed as such. And, and I find that that's quite an interesting gap in the literature, actually, that, that a lot of this ostalgie literature really conflates the kind of more emotional longing aspects for the promise of a more just society with these kind of completely uh, unemotional cultural recycling uh, instances of, of just kind of playfully appropriating certain aesthetic signs of the past 
without any real political meaning, um, especially because in in Germany or in the former East Germany, there's this also whole kind of nostalgic consumer culture that developed with um, kind of brands from the former GDR or, or products from the former GDR being resold um, as these kind of cool uh, retro products, you know, slightly tongue in cheek, but slightly also catering to a, a real nostalgia. So there's also this kind of mix uh, of, of the two. So, so, you know, that, that would definitely be, be an example where, where it's present, but, you know, retro tropes are present also in, in other national contexts. And as, as we talked about at the beginning of, of, of our interview, many representations across the region also um, make use of this trope of a child or, or teenage narrator. And they kind of build this, this kind of quite humorous, kind uh, view of, of the communist regime using using this mechanism, but also building in that kind of retro sense of detachment, right? That there's not necessarily emotional longing because uh, precisely because of this child or, or teenage view. Right. You don't have to feel emotional about the exactly. Ampelmann. <laughs> okay. Well, we've run out of time. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I was hoping you could take the next minute or two to talk about your current project. Sure. So what I'm looking at now is actually the, the 1990s, and I'm still interested in cultural representations, but this time not in terms of what they say about the past, but actually what they tell us about contemporary times. So I'm basically trying to use um, films and TV series as a historical source to kind of grasp the, um, let's say, ideological messages that cultural producers wanted to send out in relation to the transformation. Um, You know, how did they understand capitalism? What did the free market mean for them? And I'm I'm kind of also basing this on on the presupposition that um, again some of these films and TV series were hugely popular and definitely influenced uh, the way people thought about the changing realities. So I'm really trying to tease out um, what what the free market meant um, in this cultural imagination in the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland. So it's actually a, a comparative project. Well, I'm so pleased to see that you're working on the post-socialist cultural producers, right? Because I feel like, you know, it's it's time for historians to start tackling this issue. And I'm thinking also in teaching, your work will be enormously useful be, for helping students understand that because, of course, this is a period they can relate to a lot better than uh, the Cold War period. So I wish you the best of luck with that project. And I look forward to reading articles and uh, scholarship that comes out of it. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me.